Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. This is episode number 12, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Lily Nichols. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian who on her website, I love the way she put this, she wrote, these kinds of bios are always an awkward, toot your own horn, in third person kind of thing, but there's no avoiding it, so here's mine. I like that. But what she wrote was she's a registered dietitian and nutritionist. She's a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. And that's the key for this because I was in the process of finding someone who is in the evidence-based world of nutrition specifically for mothers. And Lily came highly recommended. And so I was really excited to get her on the show to discuss her thoughts around the current scientific literature, what the history of traditional cultures had shown us regarding how food was useful, helpful when it, come, when it comes to pregnancy, and specifically in her case, looking at things like gestational diabetes. She is a research-focused and science-focused person, which, as you know with me, is very important because it, while anecdote and ends of one are very useful, I still want to look at the, the literature to get the best possible data points to make decisions with for the future of, of Americans. Her specific work with gestational diabetes I find very important because it's become a very large problem in children as mothers' gestational diabetes issues are driving increased insulin in kids that therefore leads to early hypoglycemia, low sugar when they're born, but also large body size while they're being formed inside mom, which can mess with pregnancy, delivery, as well as postnatal issues and events. Lily has written two books. Her first book was Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. It was a bestseller. And then her second book was Real Food for Pregnancy. And again, both these are evidence-based, but they're storytelling as well. So she doesn't make it a boring read, just data point after data point, which is another uh, kudos to her moment because books in general can be very dry. And to write it in a way that's interesting, but also scientifically rigorous, as well as providing news to use action is great. For me, the biggest antecedent risk factor or trigger for poor pregnancy outcomes, including delivery and then early neonatal and infant life is insulin resistance. And as you many have already listened to, many of you have already listened to, the insulin resistance podcast that I did a few months ago gets into this really deeply. But just suffice it to say, for those who have not heard that, insulin resistance really comes from the overconsumption of fats. And specifically, those fats are causing a dysfunction inside the muscle cell that stops the transduction of a glucose transporter into the muscle cell surface, which allows sugar to enter the muscle cell to be stored as glycogen, the storage form of sugar, but also to be burned as fuel as needed. So the sugar, therefore, is stuck out in the system, which raises insulin levels to move it somewhere. And the movement then becomes a form of fat storage in adipose tissue or also in the liver. So instead of having sugar in the muscle where it's utilized for energy burning or storage as sugar for later burning as energy, we're now storing sugar as fat, but primarily being driven initially by by fat being consumed. The problem then becomes the Americanized diet is loaded with fat and sugar. So think about somebody who is on a keto diet. They're not gaining weight. They're actually losing weight because even though they're having problems with insulin resistance, they don't have the sugar therefore afterwards in their diet that drives up the insulin and then you store it as fat. So they're not suffering the same problems as somebody who's consuming both. So again, the fat is driving 
a dysfunction in this receptor that allows glucose or transporter that allows glucose to enter the muscle cell, which then we store the excess sugar that we're consuming as fat all around the body. And if this just meant we gained size, that probably wouldn't matter. But now it turns out that this is immunologically, metabolically active. And these fat cells and the insulin rise and all the other things that are happening have untoward metabolic effects in the body that we therefore see as human dysfunction. And these problems are going to continue to cause problems for Americans as we go through pregnancy and other stages of life as infants. And so when we get into this with with Lily, we're going to talk specifically about what dietary interventions make the most sense to try and prevent these problems. So for me, preventing insulin resistance then prevents issues related to gestational diabetes, which is the downstream effect of this, which then prevents excess insulin in the body, which then prevents overgrowth of the baby, which then also prevents early postnatal events of hypoglycemia, or low sugar in the baby, and other metabolic effects long term. We'll get into a little bit more with this over the next hour with Lily. She is a fantastic uh, educator, but she also turns out to be a great speaker on a podcast. So I am very, very excited to uh, offer her educational ability and her love and passion for nutrition at this moment. So with no further time wasted, here is my interview with Lily Nichols, R.D., Good morning, Lily Nichols. I am so happy to have you on Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. You are following on the heels of some interesting topics related to maternal microbiome and then breastfeeding. So I thought you were the perfect guest to have next to sort of discuss what are we talking about in the nutrition world? So welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. Awesome. Well, I'm going to start by reading a little as I do in most of my intros to sort of get us kicked off to the topic. So preparing the maternal vessel for pregnancy may be the single most important event in the development of a child. Quality maternal nutrition is the second key factor promoting the healthy state that allows for a pregnancy event to occur and sustain itself to term. Nutrition cannot be overstated here. A whole food, macronutrient-loaded, minimally processed, balanced diet is proven to reduce inflammation, decrease the risk of pregnancy problems, immune dysregulation, and dysfunctional neonatal events. In order to achieve this goal, starting a few years before a woman wants to conceive is prudent based on the reams of data related to the amount of time it takes to nutritionally reduce inflammation and rebalance the intestinal microflora to a beneficial state. In the journal Child Psychology and Psychiatry, Dr. Osterholm states, and I quote, accumulating data from animal and human studies indicate that the prenatal environment plays a significant role in shaping a child's neurocognitive development. Clinical, epidemiologic, and basic science research suggests that two experiences relatively common in pregnancy, an unhealthy maternal diet and psychosocial distress significantly affects the child's future neurodevelopment. When we look at individual studies, we see that maternal overweight or obesity are heavily associated with congenital malformations and issues potentially related to obesity and other concerns neurodevelopmentally. So knowing all of this, you come preloaded with a armamentarium of nutritional knowledge that I am hoping to share with all of our wonderful listeners, specifically mothers and fathers, and eventually, hopefully the children, that's profoundly important. Let's start by helping us understand what was a historical maternal diet and how has life changed and what are we looking at in 2021 right now? Well, a lot has changed in uh, 100 years. I'm not quite that old, so I can't uh, speak firsthand, but just from all the changes we have had in our food industry, um, the way that things are grown and processed, which foods have been um, demonized or put on a pedestal. Even in the last hundred years, we've, we've had like the first chance of uh, isolating and then synthesizing synthetically for supplements a number of different nutrients. So it's been both a um, progression in better understanding of nutritional science and then sort of a, like a devolution <laughs> from uh, whole foods. Because, right. you know, you go back 100, 200, 300 years, and for the most part, we did not yet have 
a global economy, maybe not beyond the spice and tea and salt trade, right? Um, so you couldn't ship in tropical fruit to Alaska. So what did you eat? <laughs> you ate whatever was grown and raised locally. We didn't yet have uh, feedlot farms for animals. Most of the animals were, you know, on the land, on pasture, in small farms. Um, you go back to the early 1900s, 40% of food was grown and raised by people themselves. And now it's less than one or 2% in the US. Um, and then beyond that, where things or how things are grown and raised, that doesn't even get into like the chemical and pesticide industry, which is like a separate thing. Um, food is very differently processed. So what was once a, um, say you're not growing or raising your own animals, you go to the butcher to get your beef and chicken, whatever, um, you were eating a, a nose to tail, essentially, a variety of parts. Um, foods didn't go to waste quite as much. So we ate the organ meats, we saved the bones to make broth. If you bought a chicken, you were generally buying a whole chicken or one that maybe the butcher had cut into parts for you, but it wasn't this boneless, skinless chicken breast cut into strips in a styrofoam package. And it's not so much that like cutting meat up is taking out nutrients from it, but it's more so that if you're not eating all those other components that came with it, such as the skin and the bones and the organs, you're not getting the same micronutrient um, breakdown as you are when you're eating a whole food. Um, and then furthermore, we've just gone crazy with food processing. So, um, from, from the simplest, you know, we're not drinking milk the way we drank milk before all the fat has often been skimmed off. It's been highly processed to, you know, this, this concept of ultra processed foods, which are, um, I don't know if I can even call them foods, but they're food products made with typically five or more um, ingredients that are usually just pieces of the whole. So you have corn starch and corn syrup and corn oil, and then additional flavors and emulsifiers and other ingredients all packaged together to make it into this food-like product. We call these ultra processed foods. And we're currently in a place where 58% of the calories in the American's diet is from ultra processed foods. <laughs> so yeah. um, these are by default nutritionally devoid um, of variety of, of micronutrients, um, especially their, you know, mineral and B vitamin content been completely stripped. Sure, you still have the macronutrients providing the calories, your fat, carbs, and proteins, although ultra processed foods are mostly highly refined carbs and highly refined fats, but you don't have any of the micronutrients that would typically be found in a whole food that has those. So like a, you know, candy might have the same amount of sugar as a fruit, but you're getting a different nutritional composition in there. You're not getting any vitamin C in the ultra processed foods. You're not getting any fiber in the ultra processed foods. You're not getting any minerals in the ultra processed foods. And this ultimately wreaks havoc on, on our bodies over time. I mean, we just get more and more metabolically deranged. And this is what we see with this huge uptick in diabetes and cardiovascular disease, overweight and obesity. And these things do indeed affect fertility and uh, pregnancy as well. Yeah. And I think your, your point's well made so that the, from the evolutionary perspective, humans live for thousands and thousands of years on whole foods and you was regional home food. So folks that lived in Northern climates may not have had access to fresh fruits in the same way as folks who lived in Southern climates, but each individual was able to adapt to their local environment because the system is set up to adapt directly to wherever we're living, assuming that it is a whole food. I think the breakdown comes as I spoke with Dr. Quinn during the breastfeeding discussion is that the major breakdown is coming from this change in how the food is presented to the system and your point to the micronutrients being missing. That's a huge play because we know micronutrients are synergistic in their effect. And so when you strip them out, you're basically putting in a calorie dense system without all the other pieces of the puzzle that help the cells work the way they're supposed to. So we end up with this 
energetically fine system, but a metabolically broken system, as you just pointed out very clearly. And, and, and we're going to get into some of the data specifically around pregnancy, but, you know, even statistically now we see 40 plus percent of women are pregnant that are pregnant are obese or overweight during their, their pregnancy. And that's unfortunately has downside effects towards the actual pregnancy in and of itself, but also towards a child's long-term outcome. So let's, let's start there. Let's go into the three macros. So when you think about your work around nutrition and pregnancy specifically, and, and, and we're going to get into gestational diabetes down the road, but define the three macros. I mean, and, and, and what in general should a pre-pregnant mother or a pregnant mother think about when it comes to the macronutrients, you know, direct percentages is really not that relevant, but it just ballparks. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So from my perspective, I've sort of been known for being critical of the um, guidelines for uh, prenatal care. And we'll talk about that more when I get into my gestational diabetes work. Um, So when I'm looking at what's optimal, I start at the the micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals and see how can we best meet those from foods. Let me throw together some sample meal plans that sound nutritionally complete. They also sound good. I would eat them. Um, and then yep. let's see where the macros fall. That's, that's how I, um, approach it okay. because if you go by the guidelines, which tell you that 45 to 65% of your calories should come from carbohydrates by default, you're not going to have a lot of room for nutrient dense foods that provide things like vitamin B12 and iron and zinc and copper and vitamin A and magnesium and et cetera. Um, So that's how I approach it. From the macro perspective, um, arguably the most important macronutrient to obtain is protein. So our macronutrients are energy providing nutrients. We get our energy from fat, carbohydrate and protein technically you can throw alcohol in there, but that's irrelevant in, in regards to pregnancy. Um, so I start with protein. We have some of the best data of all the macronutrients I would say on protein as of 2015, we had the first ever study to directly measure protein requirements at different stages of pregnancy. Previously it had all been guesstimates and mathematical adjustments for what we anticipate is required in pregnancy. Um, anyways, this study found that the current guidelines significantly underestimate true protein requirements in pregnancy, um, by about a third in early pregnancy and more than 73% in later pregnancy. This isn't like, uh, you know, we were off by 5% being off by 73% is kind of a big deal. So this puts optimal protein requirements, um, and it depends on like the measurement that you're using, but the study used an estimated average requirement. If you set an RDA, it would be even higher, but nonetheless, the estimated average requirement for late pregnancy is 1.52 grams per kilogram. And that's for a lot of people more than double what they're actually consuming. So for uh, you know a woman who started her pregnancy at 150 pounds, you're looking at a minimum of about hundred grams of protein per day arguably targeting for a little bit higher if you're aiming for what should be the true RDA for protein for pregnancy. By hitting the protein requirement, you're not only providing like an array of amino acids that are absolutely vital for fetal development. And we have a lot of data, not only on the so-called essential amino acids, but the so-called non-essential amino acids, the ones that we think our bodies can just make from the other amino acids, as long as we're not eating like a crazy protein deficient diet, turns out even those so-called non-essential ones play really vital, important roles in fetal development. Arguably, we should be getting an array of all of these um, amino acids, whether we call them essential or non-essential. Technically, they're all needed. They're all essential. And there are (laughs) protein researchers saying, that the concept of non-essential amino acids has actually never been scientifically proven. And we are seeing it become disproven over and over again in in newer research. So not only do you hit those, but you also hit a lot of the different micronutrients. I've already called many of them out, but if we're really looking to like try to get all of our micronutrients from food alone, 
not that supplements are bad, but arguably getting as much as we can from food is, is ideal since, as you pointed out, they work synergistically. We're going to hit the mark for the majority of those if we hit our protein requirements. It's really, really key. Yes, there's some that are not found in protein-rich foods in significant amounts, like vitamin C would be an exception. There are certain minerals and other B vitamins. But for the most part, you're getting the majority of them the really tricky ones and the really important ones, especially for fetal brain development, like iron, zinc, B12, um, DHA, choline, you're getting those primarily in your protein rich foods from an omnivorous diet. So plant and animal foods. Um, from there, I, for the most part, if you get your protein requirements, you're also not going to be um, prone to overeating or prone to um, as many cravings and like insatiable hunger as you would if you were not eating enough protein. So by eating enough protein, we often um, automatically take care of the risk of overeating uh, carbohydrates, which is a, a major consideration um, for women who are prone to becoming overweight or obese or who already are when they have started their pregnancy. Um, also, that's a very good thing when it comes to uh, blood sugar management, since the carbs are pretty much your only macronutrient that's going to significantly elevate your blood sugar. The other thing is if we eat our protein rich foods in their whole form as they come in foods. So say you have your peanut butter that already has the fat in it. You have the eggs that already have the yolk in it. You have the dairy that comes with fat for a reason, the chicken that has skin, the steak that has some fat on it, the, you know, fish that has fat in it. You're, you're going to be getting a sufficient amount of fat as well. Um, yes, it's okay to cook with some as well, but if you're not obsessively taking the fat off of every single protein rich food that you have in your diet, you're also going to be getting enough fat and sufficient amounts of your fat soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. So while we can get into all the ratios and the numbers and talk about the differences between the guidelines and what I recommend for the most part, if I really just keep focusing people back to the protein, most of these other issues uh, become non-issues. They're automatically taken care of. You're not going to have a vastly imbalanced diet if you're hitting your uh, protein requirements first and foremost. Yeah. And I think to your point, again, you look at the, with the macros that are beneficial to us. And when you hit the proteins first, you definitely are getting your B12s and your cholines, but it's interesting also when you say, Hey, you know, the, 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 the snout to tail, right? So historically everyone was consuming the animal from beginning to end. If you were, and you look at some of the greatest deficiencies, choline, iron, yep. right? Where do they come from? Liver. They come from these different things that we generally don't eat anymore. And you look at the meats, you know, the breast of the chicken, probably the least beneficial piece of the, 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 the animal. And we have this propensity now through modernized food systems to push the taste situation towards these foods that are the least beneficial from a micronutrient perspective. And we haven't even touched on, I think, one of the most important fats even as omega-3 fats, right? So you look at how important the function of the omega-3 and omega-6 fats are in the cascade of health, you know, that, that, you know, fish is a big player in this game too. So I, I like the way you, you, you put this out there to parents, you know, to say, Hey, let's go after the proteins first. Cause that seems to be the one that we can then guide the ship with. So if we have enough of this, enough of that, we're doing really well, but talk about to those two actually omega-3 fats, but also talk about fiber. I think these are two also massively under dis discussed pieces of a, a nutritional solvency for a mother. Yeah. So um, you said fiber in the first one, omega-3s. So yeah. So omega-3s, um, you know, they're, they're very important fats for the body. We don't need them in super large quantities, but the, uh, the many roles they play in their body in the body are just beyond measure um, and especially for fetal development. So during different stages of pregnancy, and this also continues through infancy and toddlerhood, there are specific time points where uh, your body incorporates more DHA, um, which is a special type of omega-3 into the developing fetal brain and also the retina where it permanently impacts in a positive way, uh, vision and brain development. Um, so we see like a huge incorporation of DHA, for example, in the third trimester of pregnancy. And you can actually see differences in vision permanently and also brain health 
um, in children if they were exposed to deficiencies in um, DHA and other omega-3s during the pregnancy. Um, and of course, through toddlerhood as well. I would argue though, I don't know, as the mother of two kids, like one of which is the toddler and they go through their picky eating phases. I really feel like if you set yourself up well during pregnancy, you can sort of rest easy when they go through a picky eating phase. Cause you're like, well, at least we already hit the mark for all those, all of those things in utero and during early breastfeeding, like you've hit a lot of those things even before they're introduced to solids. Um, but to backtrack a little bit, um, yeah, so the, the omega-3 is one of the, the big misconceptions out there is that all omega-3s are the same. And I've even seen, um, you know, materials, educational materials from some major pregnancy health organizations, I won't name them, that list your sources of DHA incorrectly because they include plant sources like walnuts and chia seeds and flax seeds on their list of sources of DHA. And maybe they didn't have somebody review their materials who knows what's going on, but um, there's different types of omega-3 fats. And the major ones are the plant sources known as ALA and then the animal sources, which includes DHA and EPA. And your body cannot convert in sufficient quantities the plant sources into DHA and EPA. It's like at best around 3%, um, oftentimes even less than that. So we really do need a direct source of DHA, which the richest source is seafood. Um, you get smaller amounts, but still some in like grass-fed um, grass beef or pasture-raised eggs or eggs from chickens that have been fed certain types of algae or flax seeds. They'll call them omega-3 eggs. Um, but really seafood is the heavy hitter on this one. So if you're getting 12 plus ounces of seafood uh, per week, you're probably okay on your DHA and EPA without needing a separate supplement. And then the only plant option is a algae-based DHA supplement where they actually grow and raise the algae in specific conditions to produce certain amounts of uh, DHA and it's all standardized. You can't rely on just eating algae or seaweed and expect you're getting uh, DHA. You don't know if it has it or not. Um, to speak to the fiber part though, you know, fiber is arguably, if you're just eating a whole foods diet that includes plants, <laughs> you're going to be getting fiber. Um, I think there's a bit of uh, arguing back and forth on fiber and uh, maybe an over emphasis on supplements as a source of fiber in the diet. Um, and sometimes people will come after me because they're like, well, you recommend a lower carbon take. So therefore your recommendations are lower fiber as well. And it's actually not true. My meal plans often provide 35, 40 grams of fiber a day, simply because you're getting it from you know, your non-starchy vegetables and your fruits and your nuts and seeds and legumes. And I do throw a small amount of whole grains in there for people who tolerate them. Like you're getting plenty of fiber more than the conventional guidelines when you're just eating real food. Um, but I think one of the more, you know, vital pieces that fiber plays is just its interaction with the microbiome. And it acts as a food source for many of the different microbes that are in our intestines. Um, and we do know that there is microbial transfer uh, to the baby through throughout pregnancy, the placenta has its own microbiome, and then the maternal microbiome will largely pass over to the baby um, during birth, uh, hopefully during a vaginal delivery, and then that continues with skin-to-skin -skin contact and uh, breastfeeding as well. So the maternal microbiome is going to influence the baby's microbiome, which is going to influence literally everything, <laughs> their right. um, metabolic health, their digestive health, their risk for allergies, their risk for mental health challenges. Um, and of course, it's not just fiber that plays a role in these things, but we do know that that fiber is definitely a component of, of a healthy microbiome. So you do um, want to have at least some of it uh, coming into your diet. 
Right. And I think when you think about fiber in general, it's a non-digestible food source. And it's sort of the catch-all phrase for, uh, you know, foodstuffs that go through that promote gut health, what I'll say, like colonic movement, um, right. making bowel movement soft. But when we talk about a word called prebiotic, that's a subset of these fibers that you're speaking to, where those foods actually are metabolically used by bacteria within our intestines and produce meta metabolites that actually have a host beneficial effect, specifically towards gut colonocytes which we've spoken to in the microbiome uh, discussion with Dr. Agard. And I think to your point, that's, that's the key. It's just getting adequate volumes of fiber. And if you're eating a whole foods diet, it's really hard not to, right? So yeah. I think to your point, I think that's a big one. Okay, so let's pivot. Uh, you know, I want to make sure we cover this one because you're, your book, you know, uh, related to gestational diabetes, I think is really important because one of my biggest fr frustrations and sadnesses around being a pediatrician is how much time is not being spent. And I, I say this very carefully by my colleagues in OBGYN around helping prevent the obesity and, and gestational diabetes epidemic that we're seeing. And I think it's very clear we should really be considering that as, as ground zero for helping prevent all cause problems related to delivery as well as that. So let's pivot there, discuss and define what is gestational diabetes for the listeners. And I know you have specific plans and thoughts around this. Give me a little, a tour of what you think we should be doing here. Yeah. So gestational diabetes um, has a couple different definitions and I, I like to share them all because I think it helps everybody make sense of what's going on here. Otherwise it just sounds like this nebulous, confusing thing that just gets blamed on placental hormones or something. So <laughs> gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar during pregnancy. And that can either be first diagnosed during pregnancy or that first develops during pregnancy, which are two different things because first identified during pregnancy can mean that there was a blood sugar issue that was pre-existing. Um, right. First develops during pregnancy suggests that it developed in response to all the metabolic changes and hormonal changes and weight changes that happen during pregnancy. And yes, there is a natural um, shift towards insulin resistance in pregnancy, which, uh, eons ago probably worked in our favor. And now in our situation of, uh, extreme food excess and hyper-processed foods doesn't always work in our favor. Um, and then the final, uh, definition I like to share is carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. And in some ways I like that one the most because it points to the solution, which is, if the issue is elevated blood sugar, we need to mitigate how much our blood sugar is going up. And that really comes down to the macronutrient balance in your diet and the amount of carbohydrates you're eating and how you're eating those carbohydrates and the quality of those carbohydrates. Um, as far as, you know, what impact this can have, um, I was first really introduced to the concept of fetal programming or developmental programming, intrauterine programming, um, when I was working with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is widely known as Sweet Success. And I learned that a child born to a mother who had poorly controlled blood sugar throughout her pregnancy has anywhere from a six to 19 fold increased risk of type two diabetes or obesity by the time they turn 13. Yep. And that really stuck with me um, because that points to we have a window of opportunity to do something about this. So when you think about what's happening in utero, there's really not a any sort of filter that prevents maternal blood sugar from being transferred to the baby. The mother's blood sugar levels are pretty much the baby's blood sugar levels. And when the baby gets to the point in gestation where the pancreas is now producing insulin, the fetal pancreas, it will try to combat this elevated blood sugar by producing increasing amounts of insulin. The problem with consistently elevated blood sugar and consistently elevated insulin levels is the same as, you know, type two diabetes in an adult. It messes up your metabolic health and you gradually become more and more insulin resistant. But in the case of this happening during pregnancy, this baby is literally being programmed to be insulin resistant in utero. And then what happens after the fact? I think 
most of the focus on gestational diabetes. And I'll say this for a lot of OBs, I think they really downplay it. They're like, oh, it's fine. You just, you know, we treat it with medication and it's fine. And it's just like, it might impact your birth and baby might be big. They're all concerned about like big baby or chances of like a NICU stay. And these are, these are serious considerations. I don't want to downplay those as well, but I'm actually more concerned with like the long-term metabolic outcomes um, because I used to think that we could like fix this uh, childhood obesity epidemic just by changing school lunch programs. <laughs> when I was getting into my training as a dietitian, that was one of the things that was on my list. Like I'm going to work in public policy and change the school lunch programs and solve this obesity problem. And it turns out that we should really be looking at pregnancy and arguably preconception um, beforehand, because if these children already have the cards stacked against them, it's going to be very hard to overcome during their lifespan. Like we want our children to enter into the world metabolically healthy, metabolically flexible, able to create energy from both carbohydrates and fats. You know, they should be both, you know, adapted to use sugar and adapted to use ketones. And that's how our body tries to do things in pregnancy. But when we come into pregnancy already insulin resistant and then eat a super high carb diet. And then we get diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And what do they give you a high carb diet? So further perpetuating the elevated insulin levels, further perpetuating hyperglycemia, then like, what do we expect the outcome to be? Um, now, the good news is that if we provide a diet that does not consistently elevate mom's blood sugar levels, she will also have lower insulin production, baby will not have to produce quite as much insulin, baby will not be quite as insulin resistant, and you just have better outcomes all around. And this is not just from what I've seen in practice. So what I've seen in practice with my approach is that we can pretty much cut in half the percentage of women who require insulin or medication during their pregnancy, while still maintaining great blood sugar control. Um, But the studies show that as well, you provide a low glycemic diet, half the requirement of insulin or medication. You provide a low glycemic diet, put people on uh, CGMs, and you can see the blood sugar patterns are literally 50% lower on the low glycemic plan than the high glycemic plan. So it only makes sense, like all the numbers point to essentially the same, whether it's my personal, you know, anecdotal clinical experience or what's been published in the literature, we can see a vast improvement in outcomes if we're just not consistently supplying a high carb diet. And I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. If you, you know, typically how they diagnose gestational diabetes is with a glucose tolerance test, which can range anywhere from 50 to 75 to hundred grams of glucose. And then what's the meal plan they provide you? 175 grams minimum of carbohydrates. Often they're over 200 grams. So now we're going to give you a meal plan that has 50 to 75 grams of carbohydrates at every meal and tell you that this is going to result in good blood sugar readings. It doesn't make like the math doesn't add up any way that you do it. Yeah. So I think the problem there is that when we go to medical school, like we had 16 hours of nutrition training in medical school. And then we come out and we think we're supposed to be able to adjudicate these processes. We don't do a good job. We really don't. And I think Jerry Shulman's work seriously points the target, not just at sugar. Sugar is a main player, but at fat too, because it turns out in the muscle cell, you know, the fat drives this thing called diacylglycerol to prevent the glucose transporter from going to the muscle cell surface to allow the sugar in. So the sugar gets trapped in the bloodstream that raises the insulin target. Like you're saying, so insulin's going up to push the sugar somewhere, but it can't get into the muscle. So where does it push? It pushes it to the fat cell. Those fat cells then become metabolically active over time in an inflammatory way. And then it's that combination of the perfect American industrialized diet that is high in fat, high in sugar at the same time that compounds this problem. And I think your point's very well taken that if we go farther upstream, closer to the headwaters of where this is happening, we can prevent a lot of downstream effects, whether it's perinatally, postnatally with a child or, or what else we have going on in this process. And I, and I love your statement on the CGM. I think CGM should be part of at least a 
maybe a 16 to 18 week process where it's a two week period where mom has a CGM to learn what the sugars are actually doing based on the dietary influences. I think that real time data could help people see the choices they're making as dysfunctional. So yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. But just to add one more note, you know, we have CGM has become uh, a, a bigger thing and more accessible, um, especially in the last even five years, you know, when, when I was first, you know, certified as a diabetes educator, working clinically, you know, perinatology doing gestational diabetes, like the talk of a CGM and anything outside of a quote, brittle type one diabetic was like absolutely absurd. And now I have women in my online gestational diabetes course who are getting them. Um, and it's often really, really helpful, especially because we sometimes have these challenging patterns of like, you follow my meal plan, your post meal readings are usually a okay, but maybe there's elevated fasting blood sugar. And we want to see what's happening with their fasting blood sugar. Is this just purely like a Dawn phenomenon thing where you're like spiking from a cortisol surge and placental hormone surge in the morning, or have you been hanging out at like, 100, 110 milligrams per deciliter all night long. Like this, that's, that's a different intervention. But if you only go by a single finger prick in the morning and your post meal, you know, three readings and that's it, you don't get a complete clinical picture. So it's been hugely, hugely helpful and really helps you as a clinician make much better decisions. And for the clients themselves, you see so much more information on what's happening too, because say you're testing your blood sugar two hours after a meal, you've probably completely missed the mealtime spike. And sometimes you'll have a dramatic mealtime spike followed by a dramatic drop. If you're eating something high glycemic, those post-meal spikes are particularly detrimental to uh, this fetal programming issue we're talking about with the insulin levels. Um, And you could miss that. And you could think, hey, that meal of pasta was great, but you actually had reactive hypoglycemia and we caught it on a downward trend at 85, (laughs) you know? So um, yeah, CGM, I can't speak um, more positively about CGM. I've worn one many, many times and it's really fabulous data. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm pushing our local folks in the OB world to try and do serum insulins as well, because that serum insulin spike will show you that even though the sugar may be normal, you're catching the early folks that may end up having trouble down the road by seeing that insulin triple or quadruple what it should be, which tells you again that the dietary influences are not what they need to be. So let's shift gears. I think you, you, you've done a really awesome job of laying out the framework for what that looks like in the gestational diabetes world. Let's go to some of the mac- micronutrients. I mean, because I know you've done a lot of work there. Let's go to folic acid. Talk to me about folic acid and what you think we should be doing, or is it folate we should be doing? I mean, I know you have an opinion, so I'm just going to tee it up. <laughs> yeah, this is a, uh, this is a like hotbed um, of controversy. First and foremost, um, I, I think a lot of the controversy comes from a misunderstanding or lack of awareness of the biochemistry. Yep. Um, so I'm going to throw that out there first, because I've, I've come under fire from a lot of, of people over this, um, none of which I think have actually read my articles or attended, like I have a two hour, literally a two hour webinar on folate and methylation and pregnancy and fertility, um, specifically for healthcare professionals. Um, I don't think they've actually viewed those. So we have to look at the differences between folate and folic acid. So folate is an umbrella term. It's a catch-all that refers to any type of folate. And there are 150 plus different types of dietary folate that come in through our foods from things like liver and leafy greens and legumes and avocado and asparagus and whatnot. Um, There are also forms that can be synthesized in a lab um, and put into supplements. So folic acid is one of them. Um, Folic acid is not found in food at all. It is synthesized. Um, And it's essentially when you look at its 
chemical structure. It is like a very simplified version of what you find in nature. It doesn't have all these additional, they call them like uh, glutamic acid residues. I think that's what it's called, but polyglutamates. There's like a bunch of different glutamates like added onto the, um, what we would call a folic acid molecule. But anyways, this changes the way that our body um, processes it. Um, and in addition, you know, you can also synthesize types of folate that are naturally found in food. Methylfolate is an example of this. So methylfolate represents the majority of the types of folates that are found in our food. It also represents 95 to 98% of the folate that circulates in our bloodstream um, and also in fetal circulation as well. Also red blood cell uh, folate levels as well. It's mostly methylfolate. Let me pause the, you there. Why, why does the mother care? Like what is folate at B9? So why do we care about this? So, and then keep going. Yeah. So folate does, it's so hard to explain because it comes down to this metabolic pathway called methylation, which is actually a grouping of a number of different metabolic pathways that happens in every single cell in our body um, and is involved in almost every single process in our body from the creation of new cells to the creation of DNA to hormonal uh, balance to detoxifying chemicals to neurotransmitter metabolism. I mean, it, it affects everything, but we're usually specifically concerned about in pregnancy is the fact that um, folate plays a role in methylation, which plays a role in very early brain development, specifically in the closure of something called the neural tube. Mm -hmm. um, and if something goes wrong with neural tube development, then you can have something called a neural tube defect, um, some of which can be very mild, some of which can be very, very severe, and uh, you know, it, it results in a non-viable pregnancy. Um, and these happen at the very, very earliest stages of pregnancy, often before a woman even knows she's pregnant. So like 21 days after conception, the neural tube starts to close. Um, and so if you do not have a solid um, nutrient stores for folate and all of the, I'm going to add to this, all of the related nutrients that participate in methylation, because it's not just folate, we, we have way oversimplified it. Correct. Um, then there can be problems with closure of the neural tube. So that's the major concern is that there will be a serious birth defect. And this is why there has been a decade long, decades long campaign to improve uh, folate status via folic acid supplementation and or fortification of our grains. So as of 1998, they started fortifying the grains in the US. There's 53 plus countries, I think, at this point that have um, some of their foodstuffs, usually the refined grains fortified with folic acid. Now this all seems well and good if indeed it is only folic acid that prevents these neural tube defects. But while it is effective for many of them, anywhere from 50 to 75% can be prevented with folic acid uh, supplementation and or fortification, 30% are folic acid resistant, which means that even though the mom took in plenty of folic acid, there was still a neural tube defect. Right. And there have been many, many studies looking at this, and there are a wide array of nutrients that play a role in methylation and folate metabolism that we've pretty much been ignoring um, that also play a role in this process. So we need inositol, we need B12, B6, uh, riboflavin, which is B2. Uh, what have I missed? Magnesium, we need glycine. That's one of those so-called non-essential amino acids that you get in your uh, bone skin and connective tissue of animal foods that nobody cares about, but is vitally important in pregnancy. We need a lot of different nutrients um, working together. We also need lower intakes of pesticides, um, heavy metals. Uh, we need regulated maternal blood sugar levels because elevated blood sugar levels are a risk for neural tube defects. Um, these are all things that play a role in this process. Um, but back to like why the difference between folic acid and other types of folate matter is that not everybody processes folic acid very well. It is very easily absorbed in the intestines, but that doesn't mean that it enters into its like folate metabolism cycle seamlessly. It needs several enzymatic steps to make it functional in that process. 
one of which is being methylated by an enzyme called MTHFR, which requires riboflavin, by the way, as a cofactor. Um, and 40 to 60% of the population has an issue in their MTHFR enzyme where they can't metabolically process folic acid as efficiently as somebody who's not, a, you know, doesn't have that genetic variation. And so we end up with a problem where you have a whole bunch of what's called unmetabolized folic acid in the system. You can look this up in the medical journals. It's UMFA. Um, and that actually blocks your folate metabolism uh, cycle from working properly. And you just have high levels of UMFA in your circulation, which we don't actually know what that will do because it's not metabolically active, but we have lots so, of studies pointing to potential issues with that. Right. I was going to say, cause I actually looked up some stuff before we got on here. Cause I love, I love what you've talked about. And I totally agree. There was a quad AI study that just came out recently by Emily McGowan at university of Virginia showed that folks with higher quartiles of unmetabolized folic acid had a lower natural folate in their bloodstream, but also had higher risk of food allergy in their system. And then there was another study showing increased risk of aut autism associated with unmetabolized folic acid. So I think the, the jury is still out on this, but I come back with a simple philosophy. I think like you're saying is that synergistic food sources is the way our system biologically and genetically was set up to utilize X, Y, and Z. I think the reason behind folic acid initially sort of like the reason behind subsidizing corn, soy, and wheat made a little bit of sense many, many years ago was because folic acid stays in the system longer. Therefore, if, if a mother's not taking her prenatal vitamin every day, there's a good chance it'll be in there during the major critical periods of time where that neural tube defect, uh, neural tube is going through its process. But unfortunately, you know, the, the unrealized consequence of this may be more problematic. So for me, I think we should have a change prenatal vitamins to be 75% methylfolate and maybe 25% folic acid for those mothers who may not be as consistent with their intake every day. But yeah, I, no, I, I find it very option. fascinating. And you know, the other thing that I think is worth pointing out, and I'm pretty sure I point this out in my folate article, if you want to link to that article, full yeah, reference list is included there for the people who are into the science. That's right. So I, I keep coming back to this reality that these micronutrients are found everywhere in our foods. And right, we're not, we're not, do, we're not getting access to this by our processed food sources, because, you know, vitamin D, vitamin A, Choline, you keep speaking of, but I think Steven Zizel at the research campus here in, in just outside of Charlotte have been doing a ton of work how important choline is. And choline's a harder one to get unless you eat, uh, you know, liver or eggs. So I think there's a lot to be said about that. And I know we're getting short on time. So I'm, I'm going to love to have you back on the show again sometime. But before we run out of time, I want to hear about what is a ideal Lily Nichols nutrition day for a pregnant mother, let's say you're, um, you know, pre-pregnant or you're pregnant personally, what would you eat on a, you know, like a per perfect day? So I'm going to give a caveat here and just acknowledge that, um, you can have best laid plans and your symptoms might not allow you to eat in this sort of optimal way. So what I'm referring, what I'm going to refer to is what I see as optimal and that might not happen until second or third trimester. So another yep. plug back to preconception nutrition, because nausea might blindside you and you might not be able to eat super well for a while. Hence, you want to be relying on your preconception nutrient reserves. I love that. Um, so I always have to say that because, you know, we yeah. all, for those of us who've been pregnant, we, we know how it goes. So in my ideal world, and it's actually funny, I was looking through old photos the other day and saw a picture of a breakfast I had when I was pregnant with my son, who's now almost six. Um, it was a couple eggs with uh, sauteed kale and mushrooms uh, and avocado. And I think there was like a couple tangerines on the side. Um, that would be a highly nutrient dense breakfast. You're getting a lot of folate. Ironically, not from the kale. Kale is not a super high folate green, which surprises people, but the uh, avocado has a lot of folate. You'd get your choline from your eggs, B12 in the yolks, DHA in the yolks, a whole bunch of different uh, nutrients in there and plenty of protein and fat to keep you full and satisfied and not a ton of carbohydrates. So I'd have, wouldn't have a super high spike from that. The only thing that would raise my blood sugar would be the fruit. Um, 
if you're hungry, snacks are totally fine. And I do recommend that people really think about trying to get protein in when they can with their snacks, whether that be like nuts or cheese or uh, Greek yogurt, or maybe some leftovers of something else you're eating, or I don't know, beef jerky, whatever you want it to be. Um, if you're not hungry for snacks, that's fine. Um, I would recommend some form of red meat um, coming in, especially for your iron, zinc, B12 needs. So that could look like uh, like a beef pot roast maybe um, with vegetables. And sure, you can have some potatoes in there when they're you know matched with your protein. You're not going to have as significant of a blood sugar spike as if you're just sitting down to eat bag of potato chips or <laughs> a plain right. baked potato. Um, I, ideally, I like to get as many greens in there as I can for their vitamin and mineral, um, you know, uh, makeup and also their fiber. So that could be lunch. And then uh, we're talking ideal here. So I'd probably right. throw in salmon at dinner. Um, that would be your, you know, optimal source of DHA. You get 12 to 1400 milligrams in a three ounce serving, which is a lot. Um, and I would combine that with, uh, vegetables, maybe some kind of a starch. If you have the metabolic health to tolerate some starch like rice or, um, a cooked grain or uh, roasted squash or sweet potatoes or something like that. Um, and then I do always like to have some sort of a dessert because it's fun. So, uh, that could be something as simple as like dark chocolate and almonds. You could, um, I have some recipes in my books, like, uh, a pot de creme recipe, which, um, has, you know, egg yolks in it. That's like a baked custard. It's like the, the creme brulee without the sugar topping. Um, that would give you a whole bunch of choline and a lot of different fat soluble vitamins, like your, uh, vitamin A, D, E, and K. Um, yeah, that's how I yeah. do it. Love it. So I want to talk about, uh, briefly with our little bit of time left, you have two books out, uh, real food for pregnancy and real food for gestational diabetes. I think folks should definitely turn to these, uh, pieces of literature for learning and furthering their understanding your website, uh, lilynichols.com. If I remember correctly. Uh, yeah. Lilynicholsrdn.com lilynicholsrdn.com. And I absolutely would tell everyone to check you out there. I've read through a bunch of your stuff and fantastic work. I am aligned with what you're doing um, and, and just beautiful, beautiful stuff. So how else can people follow you? Yeah, I think my website is probably the best option. You know, I have okay. 250 plus articles up there. Um, you can download the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free if you just want to, we kind of didn't get into some of the definitions um, and and like what prompted me to write this, but that would kind right. of explain that in right. that free chapter. I also provide like a comparison meal plan from my guidelines versus the conventional guidelines and the nutritional breakdown. So you can see if you want to see an example of the macronutrient breakdown or how the micronutrients compare, you can see why this is so um, important. And you might also be surprised at how behind these guidelines are with their recommendations. Um, like, whoa, people are still eating that or recommending that. I think those of us who are in the dietetics field are well aware of this. People who are outside of this and especially who have a separate interest in eating healthy um, can often be really surprised. Like, oh, they're still recommending like cereal for breakfast. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. The recommendations are a bit of a mess. I'm not even a big fan of the, my plate. I'm not a big fan of a lot of those things that are out there. It's unfortunate, yeah. but you know, my wife happens to be a nutritionist and that's happened to be the reason I learned a lot of this stuff along the way. And I remember oh, her telling yes. me that back in the day when she'd go to some of these ADA conferences and they're sponsored by Mars and Pepsi, <laughs> it's like pediatric conferences being sponsored by your local cocaine dealer. It was a bit of a strange reality when she told yes. me that, but that being said, again, I, I am aligned with the way you see the world. It's more of a headwaters approach to disease instead of treating it long past the symptom complex starting. So last question, I asked this of all my guests and I did not prompt you ahead because I like extemporaneous thinking. It's a simple one. If you were given a golden ticket and you have one, uh, one ticket to give to Congress or the president to get a massive change in public policy, what would you want to see happen? Ah, I would uh, take take saturated fat off of the uh, demonized nutrient list. 
that would fix a lot of our problems. Part of why we have this low protein intake. And by the way, like Americans are not overeating protein. If you look at, (laughs) if you look at the data, we all, everybody says they are, they aren't. Um, A lot of the reason people are not eating some of these nutrient dense foods is because they're afraid of saturated fat. And that's one of the biggest rebuttals and the literature does not support even in the slightest that saturated fat, particularly in the context of a whole food matrix, like red meat, chocolate, whole fat dairy, or the examples from a specific study I'm thinking of don't cause heart disease. Um, So that would be my one thing that would fix a lot of the issues. Yeah, we could thank Dr. Ansel Keys for that those many years ago for sending us down the primrose path of trouble. Unfortunately, I agree with you there. Well, Lily, it's a great, great appreciation of mine to have you on the show. And I really would love to have you back sometime because a lot more I'd love to talk about. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I think what you offer to all of the parents listening and, and clinicians as well, there's a lot of clinicians that follow this, is, is the news to use for parents to make better decisions because in the long run, Getting to the headwaters is a much way better way to deal with disease and treating it once it shows up. So grateful for all of your time. Everybody turn to her book. She's got phenomenal work there. And so at this, I'll leave you with the last word. Well, I appreciate you uh, having me on and um, yeah, follow me on my site or on Instagram at Lily Nichols RDN and, you know, do the real food thing. It pays off and you'll just if you change one thing, switch out your breakfast from cereal for eggs, and you probably will never look back. <laughs> well, well said. Quality words. All right. Have a great day. Well, there you have it. A fantastic tour through nutrition as it relates to mothers and pregnancy. Uh, Lily Nichols is the first registered dietitian that we have on this show, and I'm excited that she was the first one to come on as she gives such great news to use as far as great choices in dietary influences for human health and better outcomes for infants and, and children long term. Her perspective is exactly the perspective that I think we should take, which is, again, the headwaters of disease. Pre-pregnancy is the most important time to really focus on nutrition. Therefore, if something does go wrong during pregnancy with you know, vomiting consistently or what we call hyperemesis gravidarum, really puts a crimper on your ability to get solid nourishment into your body. The the system is set for success before a pregnancy state occurs. I think that is really, really critical, critical piece of information that she gave us during this hour-long conversation. Okay, so let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into some of this information regarding uh, micronutrients. For me, you know, what are we missing is always a key part of this conversation. If you think about formulas and how formulas are always trying to add back things that are in breast milk to try and be as replete as possible. We always need to look at this puzzle as which pieces are in and which pieces are missing. So we look at just the neural tube defect story and many other embryological pathways that are established and completed very early in pregnancy. We have to be very mindful that there are critical micronutrients that a mother must provide to her baby. And that comes primarily through the macro and micronutrients that she consumes dietarily pre-pregnancy and during pregnancy. And, and these are always important as they foster beneficial embryological pathways towards human health that nature intended uh, to occur. As we look at the pathways involved in neural tube development, they're complicated and well beyond just folate or vitamin B9, as we discussed in this, in this podcast. The neural tube closes before the first month of pregnancy is complete, well before most mothers are aware that they're even pregnant. So thus, it's very critical to prepare for pregnancy, not to be reactionary, but really always looking towards what could possibly happen. You know, it appears that the adequate and functional levels of vitamin B12, choline, betaine, and folic acid or folate specifically are necessary for these pathways to function and process according to what is expected for a normal fetal development or normal fetal outcome. There's cassettes of genes that we briefly touched on with MTHFR 
uh, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase that, when altered over time, are putting mothers and their offspring at increased risk. These genes have single nucleotide polymorphisms, otherwise known as SNPs, that can make the metabolism of folate, B12, and choline less functional. This puts extra pressure on mom to increase her intake to meet these needs uh, of her body based on her genetic makeup. For example, the gene MTHFR is highly involved in folate metabolism, but specifically methylation, which is involved in many, many, many processes, specifically the epigenetic processes. If you have a SNP that changes its function, then a, ma a mother might significantly need more folate, B12, betaine, and choline, and all these different sub substances, but specifically in this case, folate for the MTHFR for normal pathway development. This means that you know somebody is at higher risk for a child with defects of neural tube uh, production or other poor offspring outcome if there's not enough folate taken in. There's other genes like MTRR, MTR, MTHFD1, DHFK, excuse me, DHFR, uh, CHKA, and many, many other candidates that are being studied further down this pathway. So when we look at this information, it becomes you know, a very critical piece of the story that we have to spend a significant amount of our time educating mothers-to-be, that the diet is very important in adding in these, these what we call methyl donors in this case, and specifically methyl, methyl, um, methylfolate, to have the best possible outcome. We touched briefly on the risk that unmetabolized folic acid, which is the form that comes in so, uh, fortified foods and prenatal vitamins can become problematic if it becomes un unmetabolized. And then there is data showing that that might be associated with other birth-related problems, specifically in this case, autism. So when we look at these things, there, there there's a lot more to this than just simple you know, discussions of, oh, you can eat whatever you want as long as you're getting enough calories. That's not the case. Calories are the least of our problem right now, but the makeup of the macronutrients, the proteins, the fats, and the, the carbohydrates, as well as the makeup of the micronutrients are all critical to outcomes. I mean, if you just look at obesity alone, you know, in one large study from Sweden, they looked at over 600,000 women and noted a slight increase in autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, mood, and neurobehavioral disorders in children born to women of obesity risk with a specific uh, elevated BMI. The statistics significantly worsened to six-fold increased risk of these same disorders with mothers who went into the morbid, severely obese range and had diabetes prior to becoming pregnant. And and then, you know, we we look at these issues and we wonder, okay, you know, that that is a serious problem, right? But that comes from a dysfunction of many forms, but specifically a dysfunction of the type of carbohydrate, fat, protein, uh, structure of your diet, as well as chemical exposure, sedentary behavior, and many, many other things. The the study that looked at that uh, obesity-related phenomenon was Kong et al. in 2018. And, and there's more and more and more of these studies uh, that I have uh, discussed in the past. But for sake of argument, let's end this conversation today with the, the excellent discussion that Lily Nichols provided to us to really think through how we as a society promote long-term health in children, specifically through promoting the long-term health of mothers pre-conception, during pregnancy, and then post-pregnancy, just in case they're going to get pregnant again. So this whole process needs to be looked at from the 30,000 foot view that it can't be just if a child has an illness, it's only discussed in the context of the child. We have a lot, a lot, a lot of information now that this is all starting epigenetically even before conception. So for that, I think we, we really touched on a lot of great topics today. I'm looking forward to having Lily back to go further and deeper into these topics because I think they provide a certain amount of, uh, again, news to use for us as we tackle human health at the broadest and the tightest levels. As always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Thanks.